The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Cornell University or its employees. Welcome to another episode of the Inclusive Excellent Podcast. Today we are speaking with Elaine Westbrooks, the Carl A. Kroc University Librarian at Cornell University. We talk with Elaine about her professional journey in this field and how libraries have evolved with time and technology. Elaine will share her thoughts on how libraries can be critical to enhancing inclusion and belonging. My name is Erin Semberchase. My name is Toral Patel. And you are listening to the Inclusive Excellent Podcast. Welcome, Elaine. Erin and I are so excited to have you join us on the podcast this morning. And as we get started, could you please just introduce yourself, what pronouns you use, and the role that you have here at Cornell? Yeah, well, it's really good to be here. And uh, my name is Elaine Westbrooks. I'm the Carl A. Kroc University Librarian, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. Excellent, Elaine. So would love to know, for listeners who don't realize this, you are not necessarily brand new to Cornell. You've been in this role for, what, maybe a year now, but I know you've worked at Cornell before as well and returned to us. Can you just share a little bit more about what your overall professional journey has been? Sure. Um, So I've been at Cornell for about 14 months now, and I first arrived at Cornell in 2000, and I was almost fresh out of library school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I came to Cornell and worked at Mann Library for about six and a half years. And it was a wonderful experience, and, and I, I got to the point where I felt like, you know, I, I really achieved what I wanted to achieve, and I thought that it was time to move on, and I never thought I would come back. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, when I, when I first arrived here, I did not like Ithaca very much, right. and I, I barely made it out of my first year, and then, of course, seven years later, I, I stayed. Mm-hmm. But in 2008, I was recruited to go to another university, so I went to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And I was an associate dean there, and so I I was able to learn about different areas of librarianship Mm -hmm. and management. And then I was there for approximately five years, and then the University of Michigan came calling, and so I I was there for about five years. And then I went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill for five years, and there I essentially had the same role I have now, which Mm -hmm. is vice provost and university librarian. And so I've been wandering around for 15 years. (laughs) And then, of course, Cornell lured me back to Ithaca. And, you know, I I was pretty happy at UNC Chapel Hill. But I think, as we all know, Cornell is a really special place. Mm -hmm. And I really don't think any other place could have lured me back other than Cornell. That's nice to hear. That is. That is great. Um, And you mentioned that when you first started at Cornell, it was fresh out of library school. And so I would love to hear kind of a little bit more about what garnered your interest in in the field of libraries. Yeah, I think like most people, like the vast majority of us have really good feelings and ideas about libraries and Mm -hmm. and going back to elementary school Mm -hmm. and, you know, going to the library, reading books. And so I think that was really important for me. And, you know, I grew up in a mill town, you know, about two miles south of Pittsburgh and and Carnegie, Andrew Carnegie is really a big figure. And his the second library he built was in my hometown, and it was really a major community center. And so I think it started there. And then the first day of classes at the University of Pittsburgh, I got a job at the library, mm. and I never left. Right. I mean, I just, <laughs> I literally worked everywhere in the library, every department. 
And I think that was a really um, interesting moment because libraries are full of some of the most interesting people. And so I made such great friends and met mentors and coaches and decided that, you know, really liked the idea and I appreciated the idea of being part of the university, like a citizen of the university really Mm -hmm. appealed to me. And librarianship is one of those areas where you can fully participate and be a citizen, but not necessarily be on a tenure track position. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some libraries where the librarians are tenure track faculty, but that was not the case at University of Pittsburgh. It's not the case here at Cornell. But I like the idea of being able to engage with faculty, students, and staff, mm-hmm. to be able to engage in community. And all these things are possible when you work at a research library at a university. I liked when you said, you know, for many of us, we have those memories of libraries when we were in elementary school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I immediately flashed back, yes. <laughs> you know, to my little library with the card catalog. So, yes, now everybody knows how old I am. You know, <laughs> card catalog, you know, doing my little research paper at Portugal in fifth grade. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, libraries were definitely the place that you went to read books, check out books, and do your homework and that sort of thing. But I think we all know that libraries have really changed <laughs> since then, um, especially given the rapid rise of technology, information technology. So they are no longer just buildings with books, as I remember. So love to hear from you, you know, your perspective on what does the library today look like? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, you're correct in that the technology, the Network information via the internet has completely transformed libraries today and every kind of library, school libraries, public libraries, Mm -hmm. research libraries, Mm -hmm. archives. And I would say that, you know, our goal is to be a library in the digital age, Mm -hmm. right? And so that means that you have to acquire these collections and build these collections and preserve them for future generations. But then you have a lot of other things that you're doing. And I think that in some ways, it's easy to, to just build that collection, mm-hmm. but you have to do that. And then in addition to that, you have to set up a, a range of services that are really important to your community. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, at Cornell, our community is the students, faculty, and staff. And so what we've done differently is we really have shifted to a service model and a partnership model. Mm. And so now... For the most part, the collections are not the first thing that people come in to do when they come to the library. Like, mm-hmm. But the collections certainly can lure people in, and then it could be an entree into our variety of services. So, for example, one of our most popular services is, is our evidence synthesis service. And that is something that did not exist 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. But we saw a need and a demand to help students, faculty, and staff understand how to get information, how to critically analyze it, how to look at large sets of information, how to make decisions based on the information they have. And so we really see ourselves as partners more than anything. Mm. Not that we're passive purveyors, right? Like we are active collectors. And and when we collect, it's a very powerful thing because when we collect materials, we make people be seen, Mm. right? And I don't mm-hmm. think people think of that. They really think that we're a passive, you know, docile, shushing group of people. <laughs> but, but we make people visible. And through our work, we empower people to imagine a more just and equitable world focused mm-hmm. on knowledge, focused on mutual care, focused on learning and focused on humanity. 
And I think that's why I love libraries is because we have this very big vision for who we are and what we do. And I never want it to be minimized to collections only, but mm. I think it's really critical. Collections are important, but we're a place where we have these really unique skills, such as, you know, you come to the library, you learn how to program. You come to the library, you learn how to distinguish good information from bad information. Mm -hmm. You come to the library, you get access to technology like GIS, and you can learn how to use it. So... This is really important, and I think the other part that's really important is that we are good citizens in this community, mm -hmm. and so we think of how we engage the people who live in Ithaca, the people who live in Tompkins County, mm. how do we work with the public libraries, how do we work with the historical societies. That's really important. Like We want to be collaborative, and we want to add value to the community because I think that is really important to think broadly about our mission and how we show up in a community. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you just said so much there. Yeah, I, I have to say, Erin, I'm actually going back all the way to what you said in terms of, you know, I remember my experiences in the library. Uh, you know, growing up, this technology wasn't as readily available yeah. at, your, at your fingertips like it is today. Mm -hmm. Like, I, as you mentioned, Elaine, we all have our own experiences that just we remember when we think of like our little libraries that we grew up with. Yeah, I mean, libraries are iconic and they're sacred, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. so I think, I, I really think of libraries as an extension of our social support system. Mm -hmm. It's an extension of the built environment, and it's also a way to extend our intellectual curiosities. And that is so powerful because that can happen all the way from one years old to 100 years old, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, we all are lifelong learners. And I think that libraries just have this really lofty mission that is evergreen. I mean, it's always been that way. The technology has changed, but we're always about preserving human knowledge for future generations. And that's, that's a really lofty mission. It is. And I, I love how you talk about it. You are active collectors and not passive purveyors. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought that was a really interesting way to put it. And it could be easy for people to assume because of technology that there's no longer a need for libraries. Yeah. Right? Again, if you're living in that mindset that libraries are just these buildings with books. And I love everything you're saying because you're really challenging us to rethink that, to recognize what role a library can play in giving us access to information. Now, that said, a lot of the information that we can access now, 24-7, online, whatever, while it's great that we can access it, it may or may not be accurate mm -hmm. <laughs> information, unfortunately. So I'd love to hear more about what role do you think the library has in helping us to be able to make sure that we are really accessing correct and accurate information and doing well-informed research. Yeah, I mean, that is really a challenge. And of course, before technology transformed libraries and our lives, um, information was scarce, mm -hmm. right? You had to go to the library to find things. And now it is abundant and inaccurate, unreliable, manipulative. I mean, all yeah. those bad things that we all know about. Um, but I do think that libraries play a unique role in educating citizens mm -hmm. about how to analyze information and make decisions. And we call that information literacy. But that is something that libraries have always been committed to. 
And in this new world of misinformation and disinformation and propaganda, it's become even more critical. And so, for example, we do have a course in the library. I think it's called Propaganda (laughs) Misinformation and something like that. But it's really popular because educated people can easily get duped and misinformed. And so we really try to teach um, largely our students to think about the source, to think about the fact that most information is not neutral, and really to understand how the environment works and how to identify bias. And so you see those light bulbs go on when you have students and you're really talking through what is the bias that you might see in this social media post. We teach our students, faculty and staff, how to fact check. Mm. So if something sounds a little off, we can give you those tools to be able to say, wow, that might not be true. And here are the sources that I was able to find. And I would say that another important thing is, is just through our collection building. And so libraries are essentially stewards of fact, right? Mm-hmm. And so we provide a fixed reference point that allows truth and falsehood to be judged, Right. And the thing is, our collection is not I mean, maybe 40, 50 years ago, our collections were kind of locked behind doors and it was really difficult for students to use them. But we allow truth and falsehood to be judged through transparency, verification, citation and reproducibility. Right. And so if you want to know something, we have all these books, (laughs) you know, that you could cite them, you can verify it and you can reproduce it. Right. And that's what libraries do that no other institution does except for maybe museums, Mm -hmm. historical societies, but it's cultural heritage institutions pretty much focus on that. And so that is really important to have that reliable and accurate information that we can call on to really help people understand fact from fiction and how to use information in really powerful ways to make decisions. Because as you know, the access to information and being able to use information in productive ways is basically like a human right now. Like You you can't do anything without engaging um, information online at this point. And so it's really important that people through college, through elementary school, middle school, that they learn how to be better consumers of information. I think that's such an important skill, especially as as you mentioned, that nowadays this technology and this access to information is so readily available. Before kids can even talk, there's information that's being thrown at them, right? And so it's definitely, in terms of the accuracy, is definitely one of the challenges. What are some other challenges that are facing today's libraries? Well, since my emphasis is on research libraries, I'll focus on that. Mm-hmm. I actually think that when I think of Cornell University Library, I would characterize our problems or challenges in four areas. The first one is about the exorbitant costs of research journals. And what we've learned over the past 20 years is when journals switch from print to electronic, these multinational publishing companies have basically leveraged that. And, you know, conventional wisdom would say, well, it must be cheaper, right? It's, it's digital now. You don't have to print it. You don't have to ship it and mail it and all these things and the editing. But the reality is it's much more expensive now. And the cost of journals have basically not kept pace with inflation and, and it's increased four times the rate of inflation. Wow, so wow. a journal, you know, 15 years ago that used to cost $2,000 is now, you know, $15,000 a year. Wow. And so, and this is particularly in the sciences, right? Engineering, medicine, 
and the sciences where we see this these exorbitant rates, and this is just not sustainable. And so what I have now is that we are allocating more and more resources of our limited resources to purchasing licenses so that our scholars can have access to the most amazing research. And it's just not sustainable. And I think we're reaching a breaking point. And so that's probably the one thing that keeps me up at night. Um, The second area that is challenging for us is what I would call library as space and place. Mm. And as you know, we're in this digital world and people engage libraries in different ways, right? Mm -hmm. And so when Olin Library was built and Yoris Library, Mann Library, all these libraries were built. It was in an age when information was scarce and the libraries were built around stacks. That's the way they were designed. And so you had the books with the stacks and then you needed people close to the books because they were accessing the books on a regular basis. Now, with the huge amount of electronic content, library spaces just don't need to have all of those books centrally located adjacent to staff. And so libraries were largely book repositories. And now we're shifting to a different kind of model. And so, as you can imagine, that really puts this need to renovate Right. Because our students really have a different expectations of what libraries are. Right. And so this constant renovation that you need is really costly. But it's it's something that, you know, if I could renovate every library and make it a library that is designed for the digital age, Mm -hmm. that's going to be a significant change. And so right now we are making what I would consider incremental small changes to try to meet the needs of our students and faculty. But it's just not happening as fast as I like it. And so the third area that I would say that is a challenge for us is just generally the the proliferation of information, right? And so when I first became a librarian in 1998, um, we mostly focused on buying print books, print journals. Mm -hmm. Now I buy data sets. I'm already buying things in 300 languages, Mm -hmm. but I also am buying software, I'm buying databases, I'm buying access to all kinds of information, digital Mm -hmm. maps and archival materials. We have to collect and gather email and electronic files. And so we use the three V's. So when you think of the collections we build, there's this variety of materials, there's this velocity in which materials are being created, and then there's a huge volume. So those are those three Vs that I mentioned. And so every year, more journals are produced. Every year, more databases are produced. And so it's very challenging for research libraries to keep up with those materials, and it just keeps expanding and expanding and expanding, right? And so that is something that is definitely challenging for us. And in a related way, I I call this the fourth challenge, but I call it discovery debt. And so what happens is the material that we increasingly buy is electronic and making it accessible is really difficult, right? And so we often buy electronic books at these packages where there could be literally 2,000 electronic books. And so our challenge is how do we help our users find those 2,000 books? It's not easy. And I tell you, if I had a nickel for every time someone emailed us and said, hey, I really wish you had this book. Um, Can you buy it for me? And we're like, you know what? We already have it. (laughs) Like you just can't find it. Right. And so 
that debt that we have is like we're buying all these materials, but people can't find them because it's there's just a lot of noise because it's you got to know how to find it. You got to know what to search under. And so digital information, I think, is just harder to find. I mean, I know people think, you know, you just type things in Google boxes or you come to the catalog and find things. But it's not easy to find that one ebook in midst of, I mean, we have millions of ebooks, right? And yeah. to find that one can be really challenging. So I would say those are the four big areas that make it really challenging. And they're all connected to being a, a research library in a digital age and the transformation that technology has caused in libraries. Yeah, thank you for that. That was not on my radar, some of the things that you're talking about, and that really is interesting to realize, especially being in a research institution. I would bet, though, correct me if I'm wrong, some of those challenges you mentioned are probably not unique to Cornell, right? The kind of challenges that the library system as a whole might be facing as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would say all research libraries internationally, globally, are being impacted by these changes and these challenges. Yeah, definitely. Speaking of Cornell, you know, again, thinking about some of the things you shared with us already about, you know, the library being stewards of fact, which I I really liked how you phrased that, stewards of fact, and sort of that partnership model, making me think about, you know, at Cornell, this is a big year at Cornell. At Cornell, we have President Pollock, who was designated this year with a theme, uh, the indispensable condition, freedom of expression at Cornell. Looking at the website the other day, and I noticed that there was actually some information on the website that I'm assuming was curated by you and your team in the libraries, right? There was some actual, you know, readings and whatnot. So I'd love to hear more from your perspective. First of all, what do you think about that theme? And then what the library's role is in either supporting it or actually reflecting it. I actually love the theme because it is just completely right up my alley. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I couldn't think of anything better suited that resonates with libraries and librarians than free expression. Right. Back in 1938, um, the American Library Association drafted the Library Bill of Rights. And it has been edited and updated probably about five times since then. And there are seven articles of the Bill of Rights. And I believe four of them are dedicated to free expression. And it is a fundamental core belief that intellectual freedom is critical to libraries and not just critical to libraries, but libraries and librarians are really always thinking about the fact that our democracy is based on the belief that every person has a right to read. Mm-hmm. Like that's an indispensable right. And that's essential for personal and political pursuit of happiness, right? And so we already know that a democracy works better when information flows freely and it's freely available. So I firmly believe that libraries are the cornerstone of democracy and you can't have a democracy without free expression and intellectual freedom. And so censorship, which is as old as I could show you examples of censorship debates from 300 years ago, but libraries are fundamentally against censorship. And that is something that has been just discussed since the American Library Association has begun prior to the American Library Association. And then I would say in the 1950s, we were in a moment similar to where we are now, where there were a huge amount of books that were being censored. 
And so there was a lot of action in the 50s to think about how is it that we want as a community, and not just libraries, but also publishers and other people in the information business, how can we fight against this censorship? How can we ensure that people have um, freedom to read? And I think that that's been something that is just a given. It's a, it's a core value of librarianship. And so I get this question a lot because, as I alluded to earlier, this past year, and increasingly in 2023, there have been more banned books since the American Library Association started counting banned books for wow. the past 20 years. And so I believe just in 2023, so in the first six months, we saw something like 3,900 books that were being challenged, right? And mm -hmm. so not all challenged books end up being banned. But right now we have this, what I would say, organized effort by a very small group of people who are censoring books because they make them uncomfortable or censoring books because they might shed light on a history of our country that is not what one would think is positive, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're certainly at this moment that is deeply troubling and something that should really alarm every American that this is happening at, at the rate that it is now. And I think if you care about liberty and constitutional rights, these attacks should not be tolerated. Mm -hmm. And I think that you know, it's in the public interest for librarians to make available the widest diversity of views and expressions, including those that are unorthodox, unpopular, or considered dangerous by the majority, right? And so I could say, you know, in Cornell Library, there are millions of books, and I can tell you that there are books that would make a lot of us feel uncomfortable. There are books in my collection that would make people feel offended. Mm -hmm. You know, there's all kinds of things but I actually think this is the right thing to do and that we have a responsibility to collect and show all the complexities of humanity, all the complexities of our historical record. And that is something that, you know, I think all libraries take seriously. And I certainly take it seriously as the university librarian. Elaine, I, I, this conversation about censorship, as, as you obviously are well aware, it's so huge right now in our country. So within Cornell's context, how do you approach determining what content should or should not be available? That's a great question. And so we're fortunate in that most of these attacks on the freedom to read have largely fallen on school libraries and public libraries. And so this is not something that has really plagued research libraries. However, you know, I've been in this role and other places, and, and I do have some experience with some users and readers who just don't like something, right? <laughs> they just don't <laughs> like it. And I've been fortunate that in my career, I have never censored a book. And I believe when people raise questions, I think it's important to be transparent. I think it's important to acknowledge that and to engage but I've just never saw a case where one person should be responsible for removing a book so that nobody has access to it. Right. Now, I do think there are cases where we use discretion mm -hmm. because we believe some materials are really complex and need context. Yeah. And we all know there's a lot of reprehensible information out there that mm -hmm. might, for example, deny the Holocaust 
um, that is truly offensive in mm -hmm. every way possible, like objectively offensive. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have a responsibility to be um, extra careful about that because we want our collections to be, not that everybody's going to love everything, mm -hmm. but they have to be designed for everybody. And so sometimes that means a material might be in our special collections that has to be mediated and that you can't just come and take it off the shelf, right? Because it is so reprehensible or because it has these um, clearly is espousing a view that is false mm. and damaging. But we do think even the reprehensible and damaging materials that are out there must be preserved for mm -hmm. future generations. It's very important that the slave trade is documented. It's very important that the Holocaust is documented. It's very important that these things that are not, you know, the brightest moments of our history mm -hmm. are documented so that we don't get subject to these horrible, horrific events again. And so we kind of think about that preservation as being so critical, but also it's our responsibility to help people make sense of the materials in our collections. I like that a lot, and I, I like the emphasis on thinking about context, too. That mm -hmm. Some material may require a little bit more context. And it's actually reminding me, um, many years ago, people know I've worked at Cornell for over 20 years now, and I've never forgotten this, but many years ago, I was in one of the libraries, and I think I was there for a meeting, so like in one of the little boardrooms or conference rooms or something. And I was just browsing the stuff on the shelf while I was waiting for whoever to arrive for this meeting. And, and I saw this deck of cards, I guess is the best way to describe it. It looked like a deck of cards. And, and so I picked it up, and it was all about freaks, circus freaks. And it was all pictures of people with obvious visible disabilities, but it was being portrayed right, as they were spectacles. They were spectacles in the circus, they were freaks, and, you know, some of the names that were used to, you know, distinguish them, it cut right to me. Like, it literally cut to my very core and made me almost sick to my stomach. And I just couldn't believe that this stack of cards was just laying there for anybody to see. And so I was obviously very offended, and I and I contacted the person that I knew was affiliated with the library and said how, you know, upset I was to see that just laying there for anybody. And they were very apologetic, and, and they, they removed it. But hearing you talk felt like good. You know, somebody recognizes this is offensive. But now to rethink that, right, it's making me think, well, maybe the problem wasn't so much that it was there. The problem is that it was just there with no context, <laughs> with no explanation as to what that meant. So I guess, you know, it's easy to say on the one hand, you know, all information should be there and no, everybody should have access to it. But there is that human component, right? There's that human component that when you see something that, that really cuts to you, you don't want to see that. You want everybody to be just as outraged and everybody to be just as offended. So I guess I'm wondering, how would you respond to Aaron today who comes to you <laughs> and says, right, like, I can't believe you would have this out. This is so horrible to my people. How do you respond when people genuinely are just really upset by how offensive something is? Yeah, that's actually a great example. I mean, I think what is important that there is some dialogue between the individual. So I think the best thing first is to listen to you and to understand how you feel about mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. I don't think, you know, someone telling you, oh, it's fine or, or, or brushing it off. Like, I just feel like it's really important that we have that conversation. Mm -hmm. And I also think that we have to, I guess, be very thoughtful 
And I, what does bother me was the lack of context. Yeah. So, for example, on an exhibition, exhibitions are crafted narratives. And so it's possible and it's often the case that we could have controversial materials or materials that people might find offensive in an exhibition because of the narrative and because of the context. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot of mixed opinions about well, should we have warnings? How should we express warnings? How can we alert people that there are offensive materials? I mean, this happens in our, a lot of our digital collections. I mean, we have the most offensive. We have things that are homophobic, ableist, blackface, mm. things that are really misogynistic. I mean, and those occasionally do find their way into our exhibitions, but they're contextualized, yeah. right? right? Like that is a really critical part. And so I think that there would have been more dialogue about the value of having these offensive materials in our collection and the context that's necessary. So I would love for the dialogue to be a richer, comprehensive dialogue, and then also engage you in a conversation of, okay, now that we have this conversation, like, do you still believe that this should be removed? What are other ways that we can have this as part of our collection? How do we educate people about ableism and about this offensive viewpoints that are dehumanizing, right? Like the sad part is you don't want someone coming into the library and feel dehumanized, right? right? right and right. That, that clearly was a dehumanizing right. um, materials that to make certain people feel less than. And that is never what we want in any of the library spaces today. And that said, I mean, I don't know how long ago this was, Aaron, but I feel like libraries and archives and museums have really done so much better in this regard. We have grown significantly. And I would say largely because of the murder of George Floyd, mm -hmm. that we are much more sensitive and empathetic to all of our communities that we serve because we have, for a long time, we have not been the most inclusive, welcoming institutions. And we have to do better, and we should do better. And I'm glad that now, over the past few years, we have been definitely thinking about like critical awareness of bias, thinking about privilege and power, and how we make choices. I mean, one of the things I say a lot, and I think that some people can find this debatable, but libraries and archives and museums and cultural heritage institutions are not neutral. Mm. You know, people want to think that we're neutral. We're not. We make choices about who we center when we build collections. We make choices about who we hire. We make choices about how we share information. I mean, we, we do this all the time. And for a very long time, I would say that there are so many groups that have been marginalized as a result of us collecting things that we've always collected. Yep. And um, and these things usually centered whiteness. Um, they centered men. They centered cisgendered people, able people. I mean, that's that was the standard. That was the status quo. I think that it's important that we think differently. But that's also why it's important that people like me run libraries is because because <laughs> I'm a black woman and I can bring some of my lived experiences as a leader to say, you know what, this is this is just not acceptable, right? That we have to do better. Um, and thank goodness I have an amazing staff that I think are very committed to being a more inclusive institution, uh, being more thoughtful, trying to be nuanced about how we make these decisions. But 
also, I mean, it's, it's a matter of we can't just stop doing what we did, like those practices that were very dehumanizing and centering certain groups over others. We now have to go back and do some repair work. Right. We have a whole set of collections that we built in a certain kind of way that we now have to go back and say, hmm, you know what? This is not acceptable. The way we described these people is not acceptable and it's very exclusionary. So let's think about how we do that differently. I love this concept of thinking differently, right? And and I'm glad that we're acknowledging the fact that, you know, these organizations, libraries and uh, whether public or, or research libraries, they're not neutral and they haven't been. And so so how do we go about thinking differently is a great concept that I think all of us can think about. And I would love to talk about one of the efforts that you're leading here at the libraries in Cornell called reparative description. Can you tell us what that is and why, why it's important for us to continue to do that? Sure. Um, so our reparative description work is, is largely centered on redressing historical inequities and injustice and the ways language is used in archives and special collections, right? Mm -hmm. And so these efforts largely include replacing racist and derogatory language and removing biased language that assumes whiteness as a default. And so one example is it it might involve updating unbalanced descriptions, mm -hmm. right? And so if you have, like we have an amazing anti-slavery collection, and I believe when we first digitized it and cataloged it, we often prioritized the white abolitionists and the white enslavers mm -hmm. over the enslaved individuals and the black abolitionists, right? And so as we all know, slavery was horrific but from the beginning of slavery, there were always people who were against it, particularly the people who were enslaved knew it was wrong, right? And so to suggest that the abolitionist movement was largely done and performed by white people is just not true, right? And so when we describe this May anti-slavery collection, we center white people the whole way through. And so... I think it's just important to, to provide more balance and to say that if you say uh, abolitionist, the assumption should not be that's white abolitionists and that they're male, mm, right? Mm -hmm. And so now we have to say the white abolitionists or if it's a woman, you know, because a lot of our archives, we basically erase women too. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, we refer to women as their husband's name. And right. so we don't even know their first name. <laughs> we don't know how old they are. And so we completely take all that rich information out of the archive because men were the only people who owned property. Men were the only abolitionists who were those are the most foremost ones that we talk about. Meanwhile, we know that there were so many amazing women abolitionists, white and black, who participated and who were critical to the abolition of slavery and who, who did a lot of work in that regard. So what this process does is it brings an active, critical awareness of bias, privilege, and power. We call this deliberate care of the assessment creation of our archival materials, right? It's about care. And I think that this is, um, I mean, we have, I don't know, I think 80 million manuscripts. <laughs> so, so this is going to take a while. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's still, it's really important that we go down this path. It's amazing when you look at something in 2023 versus something in 1977. I mean, we just don't, just the terms we use to describe people have changed. Mm -hmm. 
And it's not really acceptable to call people illegal aliens, right? Like mm -hmm. it's very dehumanizing, right? And so what are things that we could do that enrich our description so that people can find materials, but also to invite more people into the archive, invite more people into the collection, invite more people to the library, um, because it's been very exclusionary. And I wanna make it clear, we are not rewriting history. Mm -hmm. We are not changing what people have said or what they have done. We are merely adding more descriptive information so that the erasure of black bodies, women, queer people, that they are seen because they have been erased. And so I think that is really important for us to undertake. And, you know, if we're working on this for the next 200 years, you know, I'll be long gone. We'll both, we'll all be long gone. This is still really important because if we're going to repair, like that is an ongoing commitment that we have to commit to. Well, what I think is also important about what you're saying is that, and I, I appreciate you emphasizing that it's not rewriting history, right. but what I'm hearing is that you are almost, I would argue, clarifying history <laughs> in a way. You know, you are you're presenting historical information and, and things that occurred, and you're sort of clarifying all the different aspects to it, perspective to it, rather than, as you said, only telling it through the eyes or the experiences of one perspective, um, which, again, could often be the white <laughs> or male perspective. But you're sort of showing the full breadth of that experience or of that event to make sure that people appreciate, as you said, all the people that were uh, involved were affected or impacted and what their experience was. Am I interpreting that right, that that's sort of what this, this effort is about? Yes, and I think we have to expose these invisible norms, right? Mm -hmm. The norm is whiteness. The norm is cis. The norm is able-bodied, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's just so important that if we expose these, then they were, we're discontinuing the perpetuation of oppression, Right. Whether it's white supremacy, misogyny, sexism, all these things. I, I just think it's really important. And for us to do nothing is, is to say that we are OK with that and we're not OK with that and we can't be OK with that. Right. Right. So the irony of the story I shared, I guess, irony is that, you know, several years after that, I ended up becoming a lecturer and uh, co-designing Introduction to Disability Studies. And that was because I had done, you know, a lot of study and a lot of research. But, of course, I continued to do that. And, you know, so then I, I started becoming more aware and learning more about the history of circuses and, and that sort of thing. And it brought me back to that moment when I, you know, saw those cards and realized, again, to your point, that's what was missing. What was missing is there's a full picture <laughs> of why those existed, who was impacted, who had control, who didn't, you know, um, and all the different sides to it and the human the human element to it i feel like if that deck of cards is still there <laughs> like, like there's an opportunity now to do what you're talking about to really present in a holistic picture rather than shutting it down altogether yeah and I, again i think this really goes back to the library's role of sharing preserving curating steward mm -hmm. humanity in all its complexities mm -hmm. and that's messy it, it's just really messy and i think that we have a tremendous opportunity to set an example, to invite new people into our spaces. And and also it makes research better. Yeah. Because I've talked to a lot of scholars who, you know, if you're a scholar in American slavery or if you're studying LGBTQIA issues, like 
sometimes it's really difficult to find things because you either have to search under these really horrible subject terms that are dehumanizing Mm -hmm. or it's erased, right? And so we really think this is also a, a fundamental part of research and helping scholars find the things that they need to find. And if we're hiding these invisible norms and, and if we're, you know, we're, we're just making it that much more difficult for people to be able to find the information they need. I appreciate that, Elaine. And I also feel like so much of what you shared today speaks to something that we talk about sometimes uh, on this podcast, which is that these concepts of equity and inclusion are not separate subjects. And I feel like so much of what you described today really speaks to that. It speaks to an inclusive approach to how you make the libraries exist and, and be accessible to people. Can you talk more about your thoughts about that? What is inclusive leadership? What does that look like and mean for you? And why is it important for the library to be focusing on on inclusion and belonging? I think it's our future. We often talk about these terms, inclusion, equity, like they're problems, right? And I actually think it's the solution, right? We have to think of it as strategic. It can't be optional. It can't be temporary or additive. It has to be cooked in to who we are, right? And so I think you have to have the courage and the ambition to create an organization where everybody belongs, right? And everyone could live up to their fullest potential. They're represented. And that's not how I was trained. I mean, it's really difficult to do that. And so I really like to think about how do I support my leaders and my team? How do I support effective decision-making? I know for a fact that having a more diverse staff makes you a better library. Mm-hmm. It makes You make better decisions. You innovate more. You do some amazing things. And so I don't feel like this is just, I'm black, and so I just want more black and brown people. Right. It, it actually makes you a better organization, right? And you just make better decisions. And so I think about inclusive leadership is really about attracting the most talented people, developing really creative ways for them to be successful. I think it's about being aware of bias. So like the self-awareness is something I think is the most important thing I could do is to think about that. But it's also about how do you promote equity and equality in the workplace? And so you lead by example Mm -hmm. and you're thoughtful in your actions and how you influence others. And I also would say it really is about listening. Like you have to actively listen to understand a variety of viewpoints. And so when you're at the top of the organization like I am, I have a lot of control. I have a lot of power, Mm -hmm. right? Like I could make a lot of decisions and never consult anybody. That would be disastrous. And that I don't know everything and that I have amazing staff who are smarter than me who can make really good decisions about what's best for this organization, what's best for the library, and how we best help the Cornell community. Elaine, it's been phenomenal having you here. Um, We do have one last question for you. So in terms of your role here as the head librarian at Cornell, uh, what is your vision for the future? What are you looking forward to in the upcoming years? Well, I'm looking forward to so much. Um, I think first and foremost, I am very much thinking about student success and what role the library can play in helping students be better learners. And so 
you know, I think we don't get a lot of credit for student learning. You know, students spend more time in the library than they do in class. So they're learning in the library. And so I want to make sure that all the staff, the amazing staff I have, are able to help our students, right? Whether be better voters, you know, they learn how to pick peer review articles. Like I want us to help the whole student, right? Socially, educationally, academically, professionally. And I think that the challenge we have is the cell phone and, you know, people access us a lot online. And they might be in the library, but they're literally just, you know, they're doing everything online. And, and so sometimes we become invisible. We need to be conspicuous, right? So that's the vision I have is like, we really have to focus our energies on making our role in student learning more visible. And then the other thing I'm very much thinking about is how do we show up for our faculty And I've already mentioned that we certainly have a challenge in being able to acquire and purchase all of these journals that they need. And so we're committed to that, but I'm also committed to changing the system that I believe is deeply inequitable and unsustainable, right? And so we already know that, you know, libraries can't buy this stuff. So it's up to us to come up with a strategy to address this problem. And I don't think I myself can fix it or Cornell Library, but I think if we work with our peers and work with MIT and Harvard and Michigan and these other great places, we can actually create a better future, right? And so that is something I'm I'm excited about. And then I would say, finally, I'm really excited about just our general strategy for equity and inclusion and how we think about it. We haven't really had a concerted strategic effort We largely had a committee working on diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging, and which is great. Like, they've done some great work, but I don't feel like a committee in and of itself is going to move us forward. So, you know, we just started the strategic planning process. Uh, We want equity to be centered in our strategic planning process. And so this strategic planning is really going to put us on a path to get out what we think is most important. And I've already indicated that. It's the student success It's building the best collections for our faculty. It's also having the courage to change the problems that are in front of us, like having some skins in the game and not just complaining and say, oh, my goodness, it's unsustainable. Like we have to do something about it. Right. So those are some of the things I'm really excited about. But I think that there's there's a tremendous amount of potential for Cornell University libraries. It's an amazing system with amazing collections, amazing staff, amazing spaces. And so we have all of the ingredients to be a world-class library. And we are a world-class library, but we can also be doing things better. And I think that Cornell University Library should be a library that leads and that our peers should look to us for guidance and innovation and expertise as a library, as a learning organization, as a organization committed to learning, knowledge, and memory, we make a promise to Cornelians today and tomorrow. We make a promise to them that we are going to preserve the history of this great university. We make a promise that we are going to help our researchers push the frontiers of knowledge. And we make a promise that students belong. You've already gotten into this amazing school. You Mm -hmm. belong. And when you come into the library, we reinforce that belonging. So that's a fundamental promise that we make. And I'm here for that. 
<laughs> and I'm here to make sure that we continually focus on that promise and that we have the integrity to keep it going so that we are never in a position to not be able to fulfill that promise. Thank you so much, Elaine. It really has been so enlightening to talk with you. And I'm so happy that you changed your perspective of Ithaca so that you came back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or maybe Ithaca did some sort of repetitive description that made you want to come back. I don't know. <laughs> Either way, um, I'm really happy that you were doing, particularly during this critical time in our, in our world, it, it's very uh, promising, <laughs> to use your word, promising to hear how you describe uh, your vision and, and our libraries. Um, it may sound cheesy, but it does sort of give me a little hope, yes. <laughs> you know, for the future. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And, you know, any opportunity to talk about my vision and talk about our amazing library and our amazing archivists and librarians, like I take any opportunity to do it. It's like just bragging. And <laughs> so it's not that hard to do that, but I really appreciate the opportunity. I've enjoyed this conversation. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Erin, I knew going into this conversation with Elaine that we were going to have an absolutely fabulous conversation, and I, I was so correct. Yeah. It's phenomenal. It was. I mean, there was just so much that she packed into. And I don't know if it's because she's a librarian and it's sort of influencing my opinion <laughs> that this is an audio recording, but I just feel like she's one of those people I could listen to on a book on tape. Yes, Like yes. forever, you know? She just had like the perfect radio voice, but she anyway. Did. She did, she did. Uh, you know, I think there was like just a few things. I loved at the beginning when we shared kind of like our own experiences with libraries. Yeah. And, you know, I know we we ran out of time because we were just having such a wonderful conversation. I would have loved to, maybe we do a part two where we talk about kind of, um, you know, artificial intelligence, chat GPT. Yeah. How does some of this new technology kind of come into play? Yeah. Um, and so those are kind of some of the things that I would love to chat with her in the future. Well, I agree, because actually some of that stuff is very much related to some of the things she talked about yeah. with the importance of information literacy. Yes. I mean, if, if ever there's a time that we need to be more conscientious about ensuring that whatever information we're getting is accurate, you know, is now. Yes. You know, it's today with the fact that information's coming at us 24-7 from all different directions. And I just really liked how she sort of emphasize both the fact that we really need to be thoroughly interrogating the information. You know, yes. is it biased? Because as she said, most information is not neutral. That's correct. You know, wherever it's coming from, it's going to have a slant, even if it's not intended to. It, it still is. And so really, um, you know, emphasizing the importance of how we properly fact check things. Yes how we make sure that we are identifying bias and then therefore making sure that we are getting accurate information and, re you know, research. It's, and I love that the library staff sort of see that as part of the role, is yes. to help you, not just, yeah, here's your books, go forth. Yes. But rather, let me help you really look at this information and make sure that it's, it's accurate. Yeah. yeah, that's something that actually stood out to me as well, and, and more from a different perspective, more of, of a perspective as a parent, right, uh -huh. who has who has young children, you know, starting high school this year, that it really makes me think about what kind of information is coming at them, yeah. and how are my kids interpreting that information, yeah. right, because if teachers are sharing information with them, they're thinking this is accurate. Yeah. And they wouldn't know at such a young age to question that. Of course. And it's not even to question, to say, are there different perspectives that right. might be missing? My kids would have no idea to question that. Right. And that was an important lesson for me to take back to them, to teach them how to question maybe some of the information that they're receiving. Yeah. 
I completely agree with that. And actually, I think that ties to the other thing that was sort of an aha moment for me when she was talking. You know, when we asked her her thoughts about this year's theme, freedom of expression, one thing that I kind of realized is that I think when you hear that at face value, freedom of expression, it's easy to assume that it's all about being free to say whatever you want. Right. Being free, free to express your opinions and your beliefs. And, but in actuality, everything she talked about today reminded us that freedom of expression isn't just about what you can feel free to say, but what you can feel free to be able to hear. Right. <laughs> to be able to read to be able to see, Correct. to have access to, right? It's the other end of freedom of expression. And when you start to get into things like censorship or inaccurate information being espoused as fact, it's really compromising that side of freedom of expression. That's correct. Very much compromising that, that we are really being free to get the information at its true form. Yep. And there's one thing that she actually mentioned that that really hit me. And it was this idea that the goal here is not to erase history. It's to add more description to it, right? So that we don't erase other people and other identities that are part of that history. Part of that history. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And that, I think that's such an important point that she made that I, I made a note of that because it, it really stuck with me. Being thoughtfully deliberate, I think, is uh, the, the key takeaway. So really appreciated it. Thank you, Elaine. It was a wonderful conversation and we enjoyed having you a part of this podcast. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Department of Inclusion and Belonging in collaboration with the Cornell Broadcast Studio. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and submit a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners to find us and the show. For the latest updates on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging at Cornell, be sure to visit diversity.cornell.edu. My name is Erin Sumber-Chase. And my name is Toral Patel. We would also like to thank our co-producer and sound engineer, Bert Odom-Reed, as always, for making us sound amazing each and every episode. Thanks, Bert.